Hello and welcome to the Innovation Forum podcast for Friday 4th of March with me, Ian Welsh. Recently I spoke with Matthew Spencer from IDH, Ruth Nussbaum from ProForest and John Buchanan from Conservation International about the new collaborative landscape approach platform SourceUp. And earlier this week I spoke with Hannah Homari about Innovation Forum's upcoming Ethical Trade and Responsible Sourcing Conference. That's all to come. First though is some sustainable business news. In many weeks, the latest IPCC report would have had a good chance of dominating mainstream headlines. The report itself is not one if you're looking for some good news. Headlines, half the world's population is highly vulnerable to the impacts of climate change. 1.5 Celsius of warming is going to be hard to prevent and a permanent rise higher than that is likely. Chillingly, the report says that the window in which action can maintain what the IPCC refers to as a livable future is disappearing faster than had previously been anticipated. The report itself refers to dangers of significant migration and a widespread mental health problem, spikes in the transmission of food and water disease, water scarcity and catastrophic biodiversity loss. There are no surprises in that those least able to cope with climate change will be those feeling its effects most keenly, and in most cases containing communities that have done least to contribute to emissions. However, some analysts have picked up that there is still some hope in that there is still an opportunity to prevent rising of 1.5 Celsius and beyond, and also that temperature rises could be reversed if there are transformational actions in the future. However, there is no suggestion that at this stage these can be relied upon. There was better news from the 5th United Nations Environment Assembly in Nairobi, in Kenya, where delegates pledged to have brokered a binding international treaty designed to provide a comprehensive solution to plastic pollution. The treaty will take a whole-life approach, including design, production and end-of-life reuse and recycling. Some hope that it will end up limiting the amount of plastic the world is allowed to produce. Others point to the fact that while the treaty may end up being binding, in characteristic diplomatic language, the Assembly's resolution provides for binding and non-binding parts to the treaty and discretion for how countries stick to its terms. The resolution was framed by a proposal from Peru and Rwanda that called for focus on product design and use. An alternative from Japan and India had instead proposed more of an emphasis on cleaning up what is already in the ocean. A recent report from the UN's Food and Agriculture Organization suggests that while ocean plastic has a high profile, the situation on land may in fact be worse. Agricultural production accounts for 3.5% of global plastic. While that may not seem significant, the risks lie in the proximity to soils and food. Many commonly used agricultural products contain non-composting films or coatings and result in waste plastic materials, including microplastics. There is, as is pointed out by website Civilites, a growing body of research that shows microplastics to be a vector for chemicals and other potentially harmful materials. This year, the Innovation Forum Spring Event Series will include forums on business and climate action, the future of food and sustainable apparel and textiles. All details of who is participating and how to register for tickets is available on the Innovation Forum website. The first event of the year is coming up next month on the 4th and 5th of April when we'll be in London for the Responsible Supply Chains and Ethical Trade Forum. I caught up with Innovation Forum's Hannah Hamari this week to find out how it's all coming together. Hi Hannah, nice to talk with you again. Hi Ian. So the conference is coming up pretty soon. How is the event shaping up? Yeah, really well, thanks, Ian. We've just been confirming our final speakers, so all our panel lineups are full and ready to go, and we're definitely all looking forward to meeting face-to-face again after, yeah, two years. Yes, absolutely. I'm looking forward very much to having a kind of old-fashioned conference again. Are you finding that people are excited about meeting up face-to-face, or are they a little bit nervous about it? 
I would say definitely the former. I think everyone's just really eager and keen to get back to in-person events. And of course, we will be following all the guidelines around keeping everybody safe at the conference. What are the emerging themes from the agenda? The agenda covers a wide range of issues related to responsible sourcing, ethical trade and human rights. We have a number of sessions covering the more like top high level issues, such as the business model transformation required for driving positive change throughout the supply chain at scale. And then we also have a number of more focused sessions where we cover topics such as the specifics of evolving human rights legislation and supplier engagement and training and so on. Are there any panelists who recently joined and any new sessions on the agenda? Yes, so we've recently confirmed a number of new speakers. So we have people from River Island, the Hershey Company, Sky, John Lewis and Partnership, the Open Apparel Registry, Tony's Chocolonely, Amphori, and many, many more. And we're looking forward to hearing from all of them. What sessions are you looking forward to in particular? Our closing plenary of the conference is on climate action and human rights. And we're going to be looking at how to integrate human rights into your climate strategy to ensure a just transition. We'll have Natura and Co, Better Cotton and the Hershey Company speaking on this. And I'm, I'm really looking forward to that one. People forget sometimes that, of course, climate change is potentially the biggest human rights impact over the coming years. And it's very important to get it fully embedded into your ethical supply chain. Hannah, how can listeners get involved in the conference? So you can register for the event online on the conference website, or you can email me directly at hannah.holmari at innovationforum.co.uk. If you register before next Friday, the 11th of March, you'll be able to save £100 on your ticket. And we also offer a number of group discounts. So if you are booking as a group, please get in touch with me. Excellent. Looking forward to the event very much. It's only just around the corner now. For now, Hannah, thanks very much. Thanks, Ian. When thinking about commodity supply chain sustainability, taking a landscape approach to dealing with the challenges is certainly becoming the way to go. SourceUp is a new online platform led by IDH, the Sustainable Trade Initiative, that's designed to help collaboration on a landscape level. To find out more, I spoke recently with Matthew Spencer, Global Director for Landscapes at IDH, Ruth Nussbaum, Director of ProForest, and John Buchanan, Vice President for Sustainable Production at Conservation International. Matthew, let me turn to you first. Just give us a bit of background as to what SourceUp is and what are its aims and its scope. SourceUp is trying to connect landscapes with global markets, global commodity markets and their buyers. And it's trying to make it easier for companies who want to act in those commodity landscapes, production landscapes, and make it easier for the communities and the producers in those communities to connect to markets, get better income and greater chance of collaboration with their buyers. Okay, so who's involved? We've had great support from ProForest and Conservation International who are in this conversation, but also we've got roughly 20 companies already registered buyers from landscapes that are on the Sourcer platform. JD is a founding partner. We've got Unilever, Pepsi, also very active, but a large number of other companies now sourcing from these landscapes. And it was established in December, is that right? Well, we've been developing the idea very actively for four years now. The web platform was set up about two years ago and we launched it, a soft launch last year. Obviously, we're constantly improving the operability of the platform and the information on it and also attracting new landscapes to be registered on it. And they're not just IDH landscapes, they can be landscapes from any organisation, whether it's a local organisation or an international one. Let's come to some of the specifics in a sec. How does it fit in with the wider work of IDH? Well, IDH is focused on trying to transform and change business models in the commodity sector. 
food commodities principally, we started off taking, as many people do, a value chain approach to think about how to improve the distribution of value, make it work better for small farmers in particular. But Landscapes is a sort of evolution of that because it allows us to test and innovate on the ground, find local partners and understand what really works. You can't invent sustainable agriculture from boardrooms in Europe or North America, but neither can you influence those global commodity trades from landscapes in the tropical world. You have to bring the two together some way through landscapes approaches and SourceUp is a a platform to try and make that whole process easier. Central to SourceUp are the creation of compacts in growing landscapes. Talk us through what a compact is. It's an agreement between three parties, farmers and the communities that they are part of, sourcing companies or their suppliers and government, usually local government. And those three parties have to agree on a plan and it will be very different in one context to another. But they, the plan would normally cover what their protection objectives are for forests or other ecosystems in that landscape what their inclusion objectives were about getting improved income for farmers or inclusion of women farmers or other local issues. And they would nearly always have a strong focus on productivity and production and how to improve it, how to change the production models as well, whether that's replacing old cocoa trees or old palm trees to get to better breeds and productivity or whatever. Protection, production and inclusion are part of that plan and that agreement that those stakeholders make. And then that is a compact. It's governed by them. They determine the criteria, what success looks like. And what does the platform do then to bring this compact to the attention of buyers and other stakeholders? Well, it is intended to be a global platform where if you're a sourcing company, you can see who is well organized and what their aims are and how well they're achieving those aims. If you're interested in a particular commodity or a particular sourcing location, and if you're a community or a supplier in one of those locations, you can try and get higher profile and more recognition for the work you may have already been doing for many years to get a better land use planning or better protection or better incomes or all three. How many have there been established so far? I know it's early days. There are currently 23 on the site. We hope to get that up to 50 very soon. Most of those have so far come from IDH, but we hope that our partners from other organisations will get some of their landscapes initiatives onto the site soon so that it becomes a common resource. And we're setting this up as an independent platform so that it can be used widely by organisations that are also doing this. And these compacts, they're located where? We're talking about Indonesia, Brazil, those sort of places? Across the tropical world, from Latin America through Africa, particularly Western East Africa and Asia, both the obvious places, Indonesia and Malaysia, but also in India, we're starting to see compacts coming through. What then are the benefits for everyone involved? How does this all work to everyone's benefit? Again, it depends on what the benefits are that the compacts, the local stakeholders have decided together are their aims. But broadly, we expect to see improved land tenure, improved income, improved protection for natural ecosystems in most, if not all of those landscapes as being the signs of success. How they're measured will vary from one place to another, but those are the common denominators. Ruth, let me turn to you. Why is ProForest involved in SourceUp? 
As many of you will know, we work with companies directly and other stakeholders on helping them to practically implement their commitments to sustainable sourcing and production. And as Matthew's already said, our approach is very much, it's evolved from working only on individual supply chains to working with both within and beyond supply chains in sectoral and landscape initiatives. Because of that work, and we started working with IDH quite a long time ago on some of their landscape work and worked with them in helping to think about how those compacts that Matthew was talking about might work. And from there, they they invited us to join the steering group together with Conservation International and many others. We've been very active in all of the discussions in that group, which have been one of the things that's been important with the development of SourceUp. As, as Matthew said, it's taken several years and there's been lots of input from those working directly in landscapes themselves, from companies, from people working with companies, from people committed to some of the outcomes that we want. So we've been working with them over that period. And I think why it felt so important to us is that we believe very strongly in ProForest that change comes from the places where it needs to happen, that people need to be locally leading and locally empowered to do things. And and from that perspective, the, the compacts work really well. But at the same time, a lot of our work is also with mid and downstream companies that need to show that they are meeting their commitments, which are about commodities that are produced all over the world in many different places. And so this idea that you can really thoughtfully start to allow that local difference, those local differences, those local priorities to be recognized and focused on through the compacts, but at the same time have some commonality in terms of the social and environmental issues which are being reported on through the platform is a really important thing to allow this progress and to this growing responsibility of companies for the landscapes that they're buying from. John, can I put the same point to you then? Why is Conservation International involved with SourceUp? Some similarities to, to what Ruth said in terms of our motivation and interest in engaging in SourceUp. Conservation International is a global environmental conservation organization with a mission to conserve nature for the benefit of people. And so that means we do a lot of the more quote-unquote traditional conservation activities, working with communities and local governments to identify and conserve important natural areas for the benefits they provide to people. But it also means that we have to work outside of those areas, within and around those areas, to transform production systems and development models and livelihood systems so that they can benefit people and continue to generate those benefits into the future because they're not degrading nature. We need to flip that transformation from economic models that degrade nature to those that restore and sustain and are equitable for people. And that means we need lots of different stakeholders at the table. There's countless examples of where we've seen one group or one sector trying to drive that transformation alone. And it might work at a smaller scale, at a project scale, but it hasn't really worked at a larger scale. And that's because of what Ruth said. It has to be locally driven and we have to have those different sectors at the table communities farmers private sector government that's really essential that we have those kind of equitable multi-stakeholder processes and that's what the development of a compact can do and try and tie those processes together give those different stakeholders an opportunity to jointly agree where do they want to go what do they want to see that transformation look like in their landscapes and how will they get there together and that's a really essential step in the process that we think has to happen if we're to transform these places at scale and i also the hope that we have is that 
in doing so that we can do some other things that are really important, which is try and bring in additional incentives for landowners and to drive more sustainable land use change, because that's really hard to do. And in our experience, we need to be looking for opportunities to layer multiple incentives for landowners and for communities and farmers, and then also to align the incentives for the different stakeholders in those places. So if it's really good for, say, local farmers, but not so good in local companies, but maybe not so good for local government, or they don't see the benefit for them, it's probably not going to scale or succeed. And the hope is that through development of these compacts and implementation of those compacts together, that we can bring those different interests together and then create some of those incentives as well for the change over time. Matthew, I wonder if I could bring you back in here. This point around learning from each other. Are you seeing that through the work of, of SourceUp already? The fact that different compacts can learn from other compacts. They can see what's going on in different places and then learn from a landscape going on in perhaps another part of the world. But I mean, so many of the challenges are similar. Yeah, that's certainly the hope. Uh, it's certainly what happens amongst my colleagues working on landscapes. Whether it's working in the wider sector and communities, harder for me to judge. But I think it's definitely that that happens within regions. So I've recently been in a meeting in West Africa where we brought together all our landscape leads and they were absolutely actively learning from each other. So a Liberian example to an example in Cameroon, they found lots of commonality. They're working with the same commodity, in this case, cocoa, and they learned a lot from each other over a few days. So it's certainly something we encourage. Whether it's happening enough in the world is a different question. We've probably still got more to do. Ruth, let me come back to you. So how does the work of SourceUp fit in more directly with the work of ProForest? What's the crossover? We are working both ourselves directly in some landscapes where it's very important to be able to make links. And more widely, we work both directly with companies, but particularly in collaborative spaces where companies are trying to come together and think about how they can move sectors forward. So, for example, we're working with the CGF in its Forest Positive Coalition, where there is now an active commitment from all of those companies to invest in landscape transformation equivalent to their own footprint for each of the commodities that we're working on. And so that makes it incredibly important that we can action that commitment. We can actually help companies to do that. It makes it very important that companies can link in a meaningful way and in an efficient way to landscapes which are really going through that process of improving and delivering on those commitments having a place where we can see gradually being able to build that kind of alignment of what's needed, what's wanted at both ends of the supply chain, exactly as Matthew's been describing, really empowering local people to take ownership and making sure that they are recognized for doing that. And at the same time, having practical ways that large companies can actually action their big public commitments. John, let me ask you the same thing. So how does it fit in with the work of Conservation International more generally? We're involved in a number of the major commodity production regions around the world and working on the ground at landscape level with communities and farmers and governments and so forth. And then making that link to our private sector partners that are sourcing from those regions, trying to set up these multi-stakeholder forums, support these forums, and SourceUp provides a model 
it's very complex. Any multi-stakeholder process at a landscape scale tends to get very complex very quickly. And SourceUp is potentially a model and is trying to simplify that process a little bit and provide some models that we can hopefully replicate more quickly. And so again, for companies, their challenge right now is they look at these landscape initiatives around the world and there's still dots on a map. And we need to get to a point where they're much larger and at scale so that they can really put the lean on the lever that their sourcing could represent. And for that, that we need to start to get to scale is hopefully going to provide this model to scale and really democratize what some people refer to as jurisdictional sourcing. This idea that companies could give preference for purchasing or investment to places based on how well they're governed. Source up is a model that we hope will get at really that goal. So yeah, I mean, John, there are, I mean, there are a lot of initiatives out there, aren't there? So is that what it is about source up then that makes it stand out? And for you, make, you know, this, this is the initiative that is worth backing? Yes, yeah, just been so loud and clear from the last decade or two of working in this sustainable commodity space, this challenge of alignment between markets and governments. And I think that's why SourceUp is so important, because that's really at the heart of it, at the, the core of its theory of change is that places where governments and communities and private sector are aligned and where government is committed to this pathway for more sustainable development will be lower risk over time, lower risk sources of ingredients, raw materials, and lower risk for investment. That's where we need to get to so we can create that positive feedback loop and really that race to the top for governments seeking to compete for more investment and to make their regions more competitive in international markets. Ruth, what do you want to add to that? Anything else that makes SourceUp stand out for you? I agree very strongly with what John said is fundamental. I think the other thing that's been really important and, and that we should really recognize SourceUp for is that you asked earlier, is SourceUp the place where people are coming together and doing all of the learning? And probably not really because that's something that TFA has been leading on, WWF has been doing a lot of work on. I think one of the things that's been really exciting about the journey has been the willingness to build on and support what others are doing as well. So SourceUp, I think, you say there's lots of initiatives out there, there are, but there's not really many other platforms that are trying to do this linkage that really recognize the importance of government and local stakeholders and linking them, but also that are working closely with the standard setters and with all of the other NGOs who are working on it. I think that's a really important feature of SourceUp also. There's lots of initiatives, but only one source up then. John, you wanted to come back in. And just to one continue to build on this and something Ruth said made me think that I think something else that's really important on it is, as we've said, this can be very complex. And I think for a lot of companies, there's that kind of high barrier to getting started. Like, how do I activate in the space? What do I do? Like, that's not the way purchasing works. SourceUp is trying to break that down and to make it much easier for companies to get started. And so they can simply register as committed buyers and make their interest known to other initiatives out there that, hey, I'm looking for this ingredient or this commodity. It's, it's a way to get engaged, to make your intentions known, and to start to send that market signal, potentially to reward existing initiatives or to help create new ones. And I think that's also really important because we've got to get things started. On that basis then, John, what will success look like for SourceUp? If we've got hundreds of these initiatives going in the future, and we've got hundreds of buyers signed up to it and have really succeeded in creating a race to the top in natural resource governance, if we can show to governments that they will be more competitive and attracting more investment, that businesses and the communities in their regions will be more competitive in international markets based on how they manage natural resources, that's what we want to create and to demonstrate that there is isn't going to change the current dynamic, which 
which is, again, it's, it's a little bit of a race to the bottom in terms of how natural resources are managed. We've got to flip that around, but we've got to create that positive benefit and investment and purchases and so forth for the stakeholders in those regions. And Ruth, for you then, what will success look like? I guess no, just a, a nuance on that, which is that there is a genuine feeling from landscapes and, and jurisdictions and the local stakeholders that they are rewarded for doing the work that it takes to improve because it's often a lot of work. And from companies that it becomes routine that they need to support that, that that just becomes part of your normal business model. I think that for me, that would really be success building on John's scale and direction of travel. Matthew, coming back to you, I'm interested from your perspective at IDH what success will look like. But I guess John set you the challenge. You get 23 compacts right now. You're going to get to 50. John wants hundreds. What does that pathway look like? Well, in the short term, we want to see multiple organizations able to use and benefit from this platform. It's not just the numbers on there. It's the variety of landscapes and organizations using it as a platform and the number of companies and variety of companies using it. So as a specialist matchmaking platform, that's got to be the short-term goal. But as John and Ruth have both said, the long-term success is success of these initiatives that reduce deforestation in complex situations where small, marginalised smallholders are often struggling for land or struggling for the benefits of different kinds of farming, where different business models start to emerge in terms of how commodities are contracted for what period, at what price, and with what value for the producers. And then crucially, that international commodity companies and buyers know that there is a recognize and know that there is a landscape's way of sourcing and engaging that gives them other options and more options for acting, whether it's through their forest positive commitments of the sort that Ruth was mentioning, or whether it's just straightforward sourcing requirements and managing risk in that sourcing. I think you're absolutely right. I mean, the, the, these are such complex situations and solutions are going to be required if companies are going to meet their stretching public commitments. They've made lots of commitments being made. Solutions are required. This is one of the solutions right that's out there. Thanks very much. It's been a fascinating conversation. My thanks to Matthew, to John and to Ruth. Thank you, Ian. There will be some more details about SourceUp and how to use the platform published on the Innovation Forum website in the next couple of weeks, so do look out for that. And don't forget also to take advantage of the £100 discount available now to register for the Responsible Sourcing and Ethical Trade Conference coming up on the 4th and 5th of April in London. Everything you need to know about this and all of the Innovation Forum Spring Event Series is available online. But that's it for now. I've been Ian Welsh. Until next week, hopefully with less of a cold, goodbye.